0: Father, we thank you for the the goodness and mercies that you have poured out to us each and every day. We uh, may at times take them for granted that every good thing and every perfect thing comes from you, comes from above, the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And so tonight, Lord, we pray for these two families, for Janette's dad, Mr. Simmons, and for uh, the Tullius family. We know, Lord God, that even in the midst of their pain and and uh, grief, uh, certainly the shock of finding out that there is uh, cancer uh, for Janice's family, and uh, and just the loss of a loved one in the Tullius family, Lord, we we lift them up to you together for your blessing, your hand to touch them, Lord, where they need you most, in comfort, in wisdom, in that strength that they need for help in their time of need. Father, we want to continue, Lord, to keep them before you until the moment that we know that you have done a great and mighty work. As you have done with many of us here. So that Lord we may continue to never grow weary. For we know that you are going to be with us to the very end. And that is a lesson Lord we will learn even tonight as we study your word. And so we pray for the anointing and blessing of your Holy Spirit Lord to come down upon us. To be upon us, around us, and in us, granting us, O God, your wisdom and grace, your understanding, and the knowledge of your truth. We we ask all of these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn uh, this evening in your Bibles to Isaiah 46. And by the way, if you will, keep uh, uh, Judy Ryback in your prayers also. She underwent some surgery as well. Uh, yesterday and uh, that's why they're not here. They're very regular on Wednesday nights and and, uh, Zig's taking care of Judy this week and so we pray for a quick recovery from her surgery. Isaiah 46, beginning at verse 1. Bell bows down, Nebo stops, or stoops, I'm sorry, Nebo stoops. Boy, that's a bad picture if I say the word wrong, isn't it? You know, somebody bows and the other one stops, but it's actually stoops. <laughs> bow bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and even to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry, and will deliver you. It may seem like we've covered this ground before as we get into the whole of this chapter. But I think that it's a, it's a necessary thing for us to uh, to be reminded constantly of how much greater God is than all of the idols that are made by man. And as I said, as, as this has been presented to us in, in various different ways, <laughs> uh we should never be worried about the, re- the repetition of it. Besides, it's God that's repeating it, not us, not man. So long before Babylon was conquered by Cyrus, the Lord allowed the inner eye of the prophet Isaiah to see the conquest as a reality. And in that context, he now pictures the demonstrated powerlessness and helplessness of the Babylonian gods. What we find in this short but powerful chapter is that God is still contrasting Himself with idols and He emphasizes that they can do nothing to save themselves. That is why this particular chapter begins the way it does and is connected to the previous chapter because of Cyrus. And We find here that the Lord is getting personal now. He's starting to name names. He names the gods of the Babylonians. Baal and Nebo. These deities were no competition at all for the true and living God, but, but their mention reminds us that God is very much aware of the gods that men make for themselves in opposition to Him. God knows these gods that man makes for themselves. The Lord has made it clear in previous chapters that there is no competition, there is no competitive deity to stand up to who He is. Take for example, just go back to chapter 43, just a couple of pages back. In verses 10 through 13, this will serve as a little bit of of a review and a reminder. But in Isaiah 43 verse 10, God says, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe and understand that I am He, before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and saved, I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. Indeed, before the day was, I am He, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work, and who will reverse it? You see, no competition. God alone is God, and there is no other with that same kind of power. There is no equal power like God's power. There is no equal creativity like, God's, like God who can create as He did. In Isaiah 44, the next chapter, verse 6, it says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. He says, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Or, uh, <clears throat> Excuse me, besides me there is no God. Jump down to verse 8 of the same chapter. Do not fear nor be afraid, have I not told you from that time? And declared it, you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. There's one rock. There's one God. There's one Redeemer. There is one Savior. And in the next chapter, Isaiah 45, verses 5 and 6... He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you though you have not known me. That they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I think that's pretty clear in these last few chapters. As well as what we see here in chapter 46. And now these false gods are brought low because of that. When Cyrus attacked Babylon and the city fell... The idolatrous priests loaded their helpless gods onto carts to wheel them away and, and possibly set them up somewhere else. Isn't that the way with, with false worshipers? Isn't that the way with idol worshipers? That if, if somehow God knocks them down or God takes them down in some way, well, they just pick them up and to try to take them someplace else. But they're knocked down. they like that Chaldean god, Dagon, you know, they kept falling down at the presence of the... of the Ark of the Covenant, you know. Couldn't stand in that presence. The idols that could not deliver their worshippers had to be delivered by them from absolute destruction. So we see that picture of these carts moving these particular idols. And by the way, there's a couple of things you have to understand. It wasn't just those two. Those were the two major idols. There were many other little ones that served underneath. For example, when we get to the, the names here, two of the, two of the most important deities to the Babylonians, these two, Baal and, and Nebo, are mentioned as their representative gods. Baal is usually identified with the god Marduk, and it was considered to be the ruler of all Babylonian deities and the chief god of the city of Babylon, which was sometimes known as, as Baal, the Canaanite equivalent. Baal, Baal, you see the connection there. And then Nebo, which, which literally means speaker, was the patron god of wisdom and the art of writing. He was also considered to be the son of another god, Baal Marduk, which would probably be the same Baal that we noticed or talked about earlier. But he was also, this Nebo was also considered the god of science and learning. We are more familiar with certain names that are based on the names of these gods. For example, Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. So we realize that that's the basis of those men's names, is their gods. At the approach of their conquerors, as the Persians came, these gods, in a state of collapse, fell powerless to the earth. Were these gods going to keep them from this conquering army that was coming? And it was coming, by the way, because God was sending this army against the Babylonians. Were these gods going to be able to stop Cyrus? Instead of being paraded around in their New Year festival, which is what they did every year, they would parade around their idols in these uh, very exquisite carts, as it were. But instead of being paraded around in their New Year festival to be worshipped and idolized, they were being carried away as precious plunder for the conqueror on the backs of beasts of burden. As a wearisome load. That's how they were being carried away. They were now the plunder of the conqueror. The picture is that all the gods of the Babylonians had fallen, and they, Baal and Nebo, could not rescue the burden. They could not rescue the burden, they could not rescue the other gods, and they could not rescue the people that were worshiping them and the images, much less the people. For they themselves went off into captivity with their images, for they were not distinguished from each other. You see, if you worship false gods, you will have the same fate as the gods that will fall before the God who destroys them. You worship a false god, you will be destroyed. That's the idea here. That is why it is important to remember that there is only one God to be worshipped. And to be praised. The prophet Isaiah has painted a graphic picture now of the shame and disgrace that await all man-made gods and religion and those who trust in them. There are man-made gods. We've seen them. They're idols. They look like people or they look like angels or they look like some saint or whatever, but they're, they're idols. There's no other way around it. Man-made gods that are bowed down to. Religions that promote this kind of bowing down to these kind of idols. It is a picture of shame and disgrace for those who trust in them. Remember what the Lord said in the previous chapter In verse 23 of Isaiah 45, he said, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. But notice that, every knee shall bow. Here we see the gods of the great Babylon stooping low in humiliation before the one true God. That is the picture we need to see. That every God one day will bow down before the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And not only that, but if you remember the connection to what Paul taught in Philippians, that the name of Jesus Christ every knee shall bow, in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And notice what he now says to his people. He speaks to the people of Judah and of Israel. He says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth. What is he saying? I have been the one who has brought you into this world. I was the one who brought you in as a people. I am the one who have upheld you from birth, who have been carried from the womb. In other words, they were carried by him from the womb. Notice what he says in verse 4. Even to your old age... I am He. And even to gray hairs I will carry you. What does that mean? To the very end, as old as you can get, I will be with you all the way to the very end. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. And what the Lord is saying in effect here to the people of Judah and to Israel is this. He is saying to them, I am altogether different from these gods that have to be carried by their makers. I am different from them. You see, there is this tremendous attempt in in our day and time to try to make gods equal to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To the one true and living God. There are people trying to make gods that are equal to Jesus Christ. You can't make gods equal to Christ. They're trying to have powers that are equal to the Holy Spirit, the New Agers, you know. It's just an old lie. There's no power like the Holy Spirit. There's no power like the God that we love, the God that we serve. But then, keep trying. God says, I am altogether different from these gods that have to be carried by their makers. I assume the responsibility of carrying you. I have brought you thus far and I will continue to carry you through even till you are old and full of gray hair. Uh, There's a few gray hairs here. Don't laugh. You're going to be there too. If the Lord tarries. I don't know about this gray hair stuff. I, you know, I don't have too much gray hair up here. A little bit here on the side. But it's right here in this mustache. i got a little gray hair in the wrong places, right under my nostrils. And I think, if people look at that, they're going to see something. They think I'm not, you know, carrying a handkerchief or something. Lord, why couldn't you just make the whole thing white, you know, at one time? So if the Lord tarries, guess what? I just have to wait till it all turns white. The point of the matter is this, that God is going to be with me all the way through. He's going to be with you all the way through. However long it is that God gives you, I will carry you all the way through until you're full of gray hair. hair. And he says, I will sustain you and see you through. Don't ever think that God is finished with you, Christian. Don't ever think that God has set you aside, Christian. God is going to take you. You've you've made some some mistakes. You've stumbled and tumbled and fallen. But you know what? God is there to pick you up. He said to those who believe in Him, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And He personalizes that to His people when He says, I will be with you until you're great of head and hair. That is the God that we serve. And this is the same fatherly care that Jesus mentioned in Luke chapter 12 when He says in verses 6 and 7 Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Sparrows to us are sometimes valueless birds. You can't put them on, on, on the grill like a chicken. They're too small. Can't get much meat out of them. And sometimes there are so many of them that they kind of frustrate you with what they leave behind. But do you know that for God, not one of them is forgotten? The very heads, he says in verse 7, but the very heads of your head, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. It's interesting that a person's DNA can be captured in a single strand of hair, which tells us that there's a number to that hair. Isn't God wonderful to be smarter than the scientists who say he's not here? That 3,000 years ago we were told, and 2,000 years ago as well, told that every hair of our head is numbered. Don't we have a wonderful God? We are of more value than those sparrows, He's not forgotten them. Will he forget you? There's a tremendous verse of Scripture in chapter 49. I can't wait to get there. But it says pretty much the same thing that God values his people. What a comforting blessing it is to know that our God cares for us. Before we're born, he cared. Before we were born, He even knew us. That's an awesome thought. When we get old, He cares. And every moment in between, God has not stopped caring about you. He cares when you are hurt. He cares when you are in pain physically. He cares in that moment that you have lost a loved one. He cares. Peter said, cast your care upon Him because He cares for you. Consider Psalm 139, Psalm 139, verse 13 and following. David says, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. And skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they all were written. The days fashioned for me. You see, God even cared about all of our days. However many days each and every one of us would have. We don't know how many days, but God knows. But He cares about every one. And then he says, when as yet there were none of them, God cared. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. Isn't that a wonderful thought to have? I've, I've known people, and, I'm, and I wonder how many of us at some time in our life, have oftentimes thought not to go to sleep because you wondered whether you'd wake in the morning. Maybe because it was due to a sickness or due to some problem that you were having physically. And you just thought, if I close my eyes, I may never open them. And yet David says, when I awake, I'm still with you. And you see, if we have the confidence that the Lord is with us and that we are His and and we belong to Him, whether we wake or sleep physically, we're still with Him. That's the comfort we need to understand in that. And the important thing is that if we do awaken this life and continue on, that's because God cared to give us that day for His glory, for His honor, and for our good. Can we live our lives with that in mind tomorrow? Should God give us that day tomorrow to open our eyes and to say, I'm still with you, Lord, give me this day for you. Give me this day to live for you, to be a light for you, to be an example for you, to be a witness and a testimony for you, because you've given me this day. My confidence, O God, is in you. I don't trust in myself, but I trust in you, Lord. I don't trust in others, but I trust in you. I can trust others because of you. But I trust that you'll lead me and you'll guide me and you'll take me where you want me to be. Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We could go home on that verse tonight, but please don't yet. We can go home because He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us when? In Him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according, notice, to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He has made us accepted in the beloved. Isn't that a beautiful thought that we've been accepted in the beloved? Whether we make mistakes, whether we've stumbled or tumbled or fallen and done this or that, and, and, and we've sensed the weight of the burden of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but whether, it, whether or not we are still accepted in the beloved, we can come to Him and say, Father, cleanse me, forgive me of, of these things so that I can be right with you and, and know that, that that acceptance is so real. So many people today trying to live for the acceptance of the world. But folks, when God accepts you, what do you do with that? But serve Him with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength. Thank Him by the way that you live. Thank Him by the way that you speak. Thank Him by the way that you give forth the light of the glory of Christ. And then he says, In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. He says we've already gotten that. He has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He made us, you see. We're valuable to Him, you see. Therefore, we can trust that He will carry us. And so, do do you have to carry your gods? Or does your God carry you? Do you have to carry your gods or does your God carry you? I hope your God carries you because there's only one God that can carry His people and that's the God that we worship tonight in the name of Jesus Christ in the power and wisdom and grace of His Holy Spirit. That is the God Who carries you. And then consider in verse 5 as we continue on in in chapter 46 of Isaiah. To whom will you liken me? Again, he's still speaking to his people. He says, to whom will you liken me? And make me equal and compare me. You see, there's another situation here that that, that some people believe that this is this chapter is, is not only just speaking to the to the idol worshippers of the Babylonians and all of that. It's actually speaking to those sons of Israel and of Judah who have done what? Taken the gods that have that, that have been you know the people have been worshiping around them and making them their own gods, carrying their own little gods in their pockets. And God is nailing them because they're, you know, taking all these gods of these people that He says, they're worthless. Why are you carrying these things? That's one of the reasons why they went into captivity. That's one of the reasons why they were taken into exile. One of the reasons why they were being chastised by God. Why? Because they had taken their eyes off of God and put them on everything else. And so He says, to whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me, that we should be alike? See, we already know that there's nothing like God. There's no one like God. They lavish gold out of the bag. Notice what he says of those that make idols. They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver on the scales. Oh, they hire a goldsmith and he makes it a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulder. They carry it and set it in his place and it stands. Folks, that's going on today. Today. Even in our country, people carrying idols and prostrating themselves, bowing down to them. Some say, well, it's different. It's veneration. It's the same thing. They set it in its place and it stands. From its place it shall not move. they never realized so I can't see you. Has ears, but I can't hear. Has a mouth, doesn't speak. Doesn't move. I sure hope a bird doesn't come. Birds like statues. You see the ridiculousness of this? From his places shall not move, though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer, nor save him out of his trouble. There is a very simple principle being taught in verses 3 through 7. So we include the 3 and 4 and then all the way down through verse 7. A very simple principle being taught here. And that is that false religion is based on works and true worship is founded on grace. That is a simple principle that extends from Old Testament to New Testament. Again, what is the principle? The principle is that false religion is based on works. And true worship is founded on grace. It has always been, it has always been that way and it will always be that way. Consider how much money and attention goes into the production and the care of idols of men today. And again, you know, we've talked about idols not being just something that, you know, that is religious. You know, men makes things that it bows down to and gives veneration to, whether they think they're doing it or not. When that thing, becomes more important than everything in their lives and everything else in their lives, then that's an idol and that's worship. So consider this thought in a very broad way that uh, you know there's a lot of money and attention going into the production and care of idols of men. The greatest idol being money itself. That has become one of the great idols of our time, but it's always been that way. That was a problem in the Old Testament. It was problem in the New Testament. What did Paul say in First Timothy six? Lovers of money. So Is it any wonder then that the Lord had satirized the making of graven images here out of the various metals as he mocked the making of idols out of the trees of the forest a couple of verses a couple of chapters back Did the same thing he satirized how they went and took these you know trees and they carved them down and they Ben began to carve the idols. He's making it clear. Trees, iron, gold, silver, whatever it is, the more you do it, it's all works, isn't it? The idol is made, and what does the idol do? Nothing. When Aaron, the brother of Moses, was compelled to make the molded calf, who seemed who seemed to be performing all the motions. I'm not talking about watching the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, okay? No, that it may have been it may have been kind of close to that maybe you know but, but the, the point of the matter is this what was the idol doing what was the idol doing it was immovable you see unless it was being paraded around by the people it couldn't walk on its own it couldn't see and it couldn't hear it couldn't do anything but what they say Moses isn't coming down he's probably dead up there hey, You Aaron, make us a, a golden calf make us a molded calf and that would be the God that he went up there to see now we can see him now see but from the very beginning, our God is a God that we cannot see with these eyes. That's why you sang tonight, Lord, open our eyes that so we might see Jesus. We have experienced Jesus, we've known Jesus, we've seen his presence, we've seen his work around us. One day we want to see him as he is. Go back to Exodus 32 for just a moment. There in verse 4 it says, He received the gold from their hand, being Aaron, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and he made a molded calf. Aaron was just as responsible here. It doesn't say that he was coerced. They told him, make it and he made it. And then they said, this is your God, O Israel. They brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. Wow. Wow. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast of the Lord. Aaron made the proclamation. Moses' own brother. And then they, they, they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings, and people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Where was all the activity? It was in the people. That idol did nothing. <laughs> they just sat there. Whatever a golden calf looks like. You know, it is so foolish to think that God can be likened unto a helpless image made by the hands of man. And that is why the Lord asks the question, to whom will you liken me? To his own people, he says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? Just think for a moment of, these, you know, of those religions that continue to carry images or idols that people foolishly follow until it is placed in a location where people bow down to it, whether it be plated or even plastered. You see, the material is immaterial. If they see the image, they bow down to it. Is it any wonder that two of the Ten Commandments state, you shall have no other gods before me? You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And folks, remember this. Oh, we've seen some images, but no, we don't bow down to them. This is when you take something and you make it, and you spend time and labor and sweat to make it so that people can bow down to that particular image. That is what this commandment is speaking about. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. That's a strong statement, isn't it? But that's one of the commandments. But showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Who will not bow down to an image. And may I say to you, an image like a cross. we got a cross out there in the the foyer. I have yet to see anybody bow down to it. Now if I see anybody bow down to it, I might go and kick them. Say, you don't do that here. That's not there for that purpose. It's there to remind us of something put a little label upon that cross that says it is finished. Just to remind us that Jesus is not on the cross anymore. And he's not even in the tomb anymore. He is risen. And he's alive. Paul said we are to preach the cross. So we have the image, but it doesn't, it's, it's not made to be worshipped. You understand now? So in those days of trial and tragedy, We must remember that idols will be worthless, but not so the true and living God. The Lord now calls His people to remember the work that He has already done on their behalf. Look at verses 8-10. through He says, remember this and show yourselves men. I, I love that. He's saying, be men for a change. Be men. We in the 21st century and these first few years of, of the, uh, you know the year 2000 and this decade you know as it were it's almost coming to an end. can you imagine it's going to be 2008 here just you know before you know it and men need to be men and God is saying hey remember this and show yourselves men Recall to mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring notice, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Men are to show they are courageous in doing those things that honor and bless God by remembering the things that God tells us to remember. In other words, there is no courage in forgetting. Only defeat and suffering when we forget the things that God has given us. How do we best remember men to be men? And that doesn't mean I'm not talking to ladies here, but, you know, the same principle applies at least. And that is that to be the person that God wants us to be, whether we're a man or a woman, but to be the person God wants us to be, we need to stay in His Word and we need to keep knowing who He is. And we need to keep doing the things that He calls us to do. What happens when we forget, and sometimes when we forget willingly, that we don't want to kind of go to that verse of Scripture that told me not to do what I really wanted to do right now. We forget it. Well, for forgetting, why? Because I don't want that to bother me while I'm doing this part of the problem with a lot of people falling away from the Lord you stay in the fear of the Lord and you stay in the word of God and I'll tell you this you'll remember what God says and when the temptation comes you'll run from it rather than run to it but it takes courage it takes men it takes a man to love his wife takes a man. Courage. Man, I, I don't know what the Hollywood is doing to men nowadays, you know? They're painting them like. Man, let's be men, guys. And be the kind of men that God called us to be. Not only in our homes, but in the church as well. I want you to consider Deuteronomy 5, verse 15. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Remember that. And the Lord brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. The Lord your God brought you out from there. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. There was a commandment there. Remember those things. First Chronicles 16 verses 11 and 12. Seek the Lord in his strength seek his face evermore remember there's that word remember his marvelous works which he has done his wonders and the judgments of his mouth remember those things and it was not only old testament what about new testament second timothy chapter 2 verse 8 where paul says to timothy remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel Remember that Jesus was risen. Why is it that some people try to live as if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? He's risen. He's glorified. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's getting ready to come again. That should spark our hearts to live for Him. We should be on fire for Christ because of that. Some people still live as if Jesus is in the tomb. They were to remember the former things, the deeds and the words of God of long ago, that He alone was divine and is divine, and that He alone is God. Verse 10 expands this thought in some detail, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done. You see, God is not of this time continuum, God is of eternity. He's seen the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. He's seen the whole parade. ever gone to a parade? You only see one part of the parade at a time. Somebody comes to you and says, Hey, has the other, has the so, so and so float come by yet? No, it hasn't come by. I really want to see it. Well, go back that way. You have to go all the way to come about 10 blocks and then you can see it coming. Has the other flow come by? Yeah, that one passed. Where is it? Well, go about ten blocks that way. So hurry up. That's what we have to do. But God, He's seen the whole thing. He can tell us what's happened. And that's what He's saying here. God made known the future well in advance. Isaiah, go back to verse, uh, I should say chapter 41. Who has declared this from the beginning? Verse 26. Who has declared this from the beginning? Or who has declared from the beginning that we may know? And former times that we may say, He is righteous. Surely there is no one who shows. Surely there is no one who declares. Surely there is no one who hears your words. Why? Because only God can do that. Only God can declare from beginning to the end. In chapter 45, which we looked at last week, verse 21 says, Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time, have not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Folks, this isn't just foreknowledge, but it shows that He is the one who effectively affects all that takes place. He effectively affects all that takes place. He is the one who brings His purpose into existence and does all His pleasure. Go back to Isaiah 44, verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. When does he say this? 150 years before Cyrus is born. Declaring the end from the beginning. And now, all these truths are applied, especially to Cyrus, in verse 11. Let's look at verse 11 now. He says, calling a bird of prey from the east, interesting designation. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. God is saying, I've seen this, it's going to happen. It'll happen 150 years or so, a little bit longer now, you know, it's going to happen when it happens. I'm telling you right now, it's going to happen. You see what man tries to do? Man tries to say, well, no, now this is Isaiah that wrote this particular part of the book. Well, he is already around and it already happened. No, no. no. You're an idiot if you think that. Because Jesus only talked about one Isaiah. And in every part, and we covered this already, in every part of the book of Isaiah, the 66 chapters. Jesus quoted this, the prophet said, the prophet Isaiah. Not Isaiah 1, not Isaiah 2, not Isaiah A, not Isaiah B, not Isaiah C, not Isaiah 3. No, one Isaiah. Received this message before Cyrus was even born and named. And, and, and the Lord named him. So now he calls this bird of prey from the east. And it was the Lord who summoned Cyrus from the east and from that far off land. He is called a bird of prey to highlight the power and the speed with which he made the nations his prey, especially Babylon. And it is interesting that the Persian ensign was an eagle. The, 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 the very uh, the thing that was on their standards, that was on their flags, on their banners, was an eagle. And, and, and the Lord says, He calls a bird of prey from the east. What is an eagle? A bird of prey. Cyrus is also called by God the man who executes my counsel because in God's plan he has been appointed to this task. Thus it is God who brought about the fall of Babylon just as he had conceived it in advance and declared it. The Lord's people should remember that he always has a deliverer for his people even if he has to find one among heathen kings. And in this case he did. Cyrus Now in verses 12 and 13, the last two verses of this text, it says, listen to me. Now where did we hear those words before? Go back to verse 3. Listen to me. And and, and this this is the kindness of God. Speaking to His people, He says, listen to me. You stubborn hearted who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near. It shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. What a beautiful name he gives to his people. For Israel, my glory. The prophecy turns once again from rebuke to consolation and comfort as the Lord repeats the invitation, Listen to me. That is an invitation. What what was the invitation last week in, in, in chapter 45? Look to me, all you nations, and be saved. Look to me. Listen to me. God is inviting His people to listen to Him. Why were they despondent? In other words, why were they downhearted, dejected, stubborn hearted? Remember that they thought, how could it be right for God to choose such a man? And how could he have his people's best interests at heart in doing so when he chooses this Persian? That response was practically the same as rebelling against God. Because it calls into question not only God's sovereign freedom, but his goodness. What God was doing was choosing this man because this man was going to set them free from captivity. It was His doing. And what they were doing was striking at the very heart of the covenant relationship between God and them. By questioning what God was doing. You see, God can do whatever He wants. Because He's God. And when God does whatever He wants, He's always going to do it perfectly. And He's never going to make any mistakes when He does it. That's what we have to understand about God. And the answer to the question itself is simple. It was because he loved Israel. It was because he loved Israel. What question? Well, the question I asked: How could it be right for God to choose a man like Cyrus? Because he loved Israel that he chose her in the first place. And because of that same love that he had carried her ever since. That is why he did what he did. That is why God does what he does. Why is it that sometimes God uses some of the worst things in our life to bring us into focus with him? Because God is able to use everything and anything to get us right with Him. Because He loves us. Notice what He says in Deuteronomy 7 verses 7 and 8. It's it's Moses speaking of the Lord. And it says, The Lord did not set His love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you. And because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." God's people need always to remember that His timing is always precise. His timing is always perfect. His timing is always wise. He will never delay and He's never late. I tell you what, look at all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Look at all four Gospels and see when Jesus ever came late. Some of you will say, oh, I know where. In the Gospel of John. He was late because He was going to Lazarus, because he was sick. What, did Je- what does it say about Jesus there? He didn't move. He chose not to move. Until Lazarus was dead. You see, he was never late. He was right on time. Because when he came up to that tomb, weeping, weeping, Not because of a dead friend weeping because of a dead nation. And he had them roll the stone away and he said, Lazarus come forth. It was to prove that he was the resurrection and the life. Jesus never was late anywhere. He wasn't even late when he came to Bethlehem when he was born. How many of your kids were born late? Oh, hurry up please. Jesus wasn't late. Came right on time born right on the right moment and you know what he died at the right moment too and he rose again at the perfect time just like he said on the third day Jesus rose again God is never late it must also be remembered that it is the Lord's grace rather than his people's sinfulness that will triumph in the end now, that doesn't mean that we should just forget about how we live. No, we need to remember how we are to live in the presence of a holy God. But let's remember this. It is God's grace, not our sinfulness, that will triumph in the end. God's grace will triumph. He will grant salvation and splendor to His people. He will grant salvation to Israel one day and the splendor oh, to His people. What splendor is that? Israel... My glory. Israel will be the glory of the true and everlasting God. But so will those who believe in Jesus Christ. You know, there's a play on words in verses 12 and 13. There's a play on words here in verses 12 and 13 between the words righteousness and salvation. The way that it's all structured here is. Is to bring to mind that the exiles received this prophecy. As they received the prophecy, they were far from victory. You see where it says they were far from righteousness? Verse 12. They were far from victory and deliverance because they were far from righteousness. But they were to be encouraged that his salvation would not linger. He said the same thing through the prophet Habakkuk, I should say. He said the same thing. Hey, I'm going to bring my righteousness near. You're far from it, but I'm bringing it near. I'm bringing salvation. You guys are far from it, but I'm coming. I'm bringing it near. And I'm not going to linger when I bring it. Habakkuk 2 verse 3 says, For the vision is yet for an appointed time. But at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it. Because it will surely come. It will not tarry. You see, God's never late. He says, wait for it. What did Jesus tell us? He says, wait, I'm coming again. Be ready, wait. Don't fall asleep. Wait. Be in prayer. What did Peter say? For the end, is, for the end of all things is, is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. First Peter four seven. Be serious and watchful. Why? Because I'm coming at any moment. You don't want to be like those, those, those five virgins that didn't have their lamps ready. You've got to be ready because I can come at any time. But when I come, I come because it's the perfect time to come. We want it now, but God knows when the right time is. Can you imagine if he came now, how many people that we love are not going to be in Christ? We don't want that to happen, do we? We want them to be in the love of the Lord. We want them to know Christ before the Lord comes. Is this not an urgent message for us to remember that there are still people that are going to hell if they don't come to Jesus Christ? And these are people we love, that we, that we care for. But the Lord's timing is always perfect. He always has His deliverer. And He always knows when to bring His deliverance. That is why Jesus can be trusted. That is why you need to trust the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength. In Psalm 20 verses 6 and 7 it says, Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He will answer Him from His holy heaven with the saving strength of His right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Folks, we as believers in Jesus know what that name is. It is Yeshua. It is Jesus. That's the name. Lastly, Psalm 37 verses 3 through 6. I encourage you to take these verses And meditate upon them. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him. And He shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. If you were to read on, it says rest in the Lord. You know, we can't rest in the Lord until we trust in the Lord. Paul begins his letters many times, grace and peace. You can't have the peace before you have the grace of the Lord. So trust in the Lord. Call unto the Lord tonight. Say, Lord Jesus, I've trusted too much in other things and I've not trusted as I need to in You. Lord, grant me. Grant me Your mercy and Your grace so that I may trust You with all of my heart until the day that Jesus Christ comes for his people, his church. Commit your ways to the Lord. Roll them over upon God. He'll carry you. Folks, I'd rather be carried by the Lord than buried without him. Amen? Let's be carried. Let's pray.